place your advance order now on Amazon for the very first volume of the New Thinking Aloud Dialogue series, Is There Life After Death? Publication date is June 1st. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the topic of Rudolf Steiner and the mystery of Golgotha. My guest is my good friend, James Tunney, something of a Renaissance man, a painter, a poet, an attorney, and a scholar, as well as a novelist. He is author of many books, including The Mystical Accord, Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution, The Mystery of the Trapped Light, Mystical Thoughts in the Dark Age of Scientism. Empire of Scientism, the dispiriting conspiracy and inevitable tyranny of Scientocracy. Tech bondage, slavery of the human spirit. Human entrance to transhumanism, machine merger and the end of humanity. Most recently, plantation of the automatons. He is also the author of two dystopian novels, Blue Lies September and Ireland. I don't recognize who she is. James lives in Gothenburg, Sweden. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome again, James. What a pleasure to uh, have these ongoing conversations with you. Great, Jeff. Great to see you. Looking forward to the opportunity for another conversation, building on our previous ones. Well, this is maybe a little bit more or a lot more esoteric than our previous discussions. I I know it was just today we've released our interview on uh, William Butler Yeats and, and Magic. It's getting a very strong audience response. But I think it's probably fair to say that uh, Rudolf Steiner represents a deeper dive into the esoteric even than William Butler Yeats. I think that's right. I think that's right, Jeff. And in particular, in relation to Yeats, they're very similar in many ways in their trajectories. But there is a distinguishing factor in so far as Steiner was very successful in, in, in a whole range of, of, of domains, as was Yeats, I suppose, with, with the theatre and, and the things we've mentioned. Um, and also he had a, a lasting influence in an institutional way, which may distinguish him. But he he he, do, he does parallel Yeats, but he does go deeper on some specific issues, particularly in the context that we're talking about today. He certainly focuses more on that. I would imagine that Yeats was probably a better poet and a better playwright than Steiner. But Steiner wrote these mystery plays, uh, but then he built the theater in which they're performed, designed the stained glass windows, not only the windows, but the very procedure for carving into uh, colored glass windows was it was a unique innovation of his, as, as well as areas as diverse as uh, biodynamic 
dynamic farming, holistic medicine, uh, Waldorf education. Uh, to me, Steiner is uh, really uh, an unparalleled genius for his age. I agree. Uh, but just in a little defense there of Yeats, as, as we're talking about, remembering his, his, we won't go over it again, about the theater, but also his family were involved in arts and crafts and in, in printing and publishing uh, as well. And there was connection with education. And don't forget that Yeats was the one who encouraged A.E. Russell to set up the cooperative movement. So there's a, there's, there is a parallel, but there is no question that Rudolf Steiner has a, a totally holistic uh, view which surpasses Yeats and in particular his view of the body and his incorporation of the body into his philosophy I think is, is a distinguishing factor in many senses. I'm personally fascinated by the career and the the work of Rudolf Steiner. I know he's delivered over 200 lectures, which have now all been published as, as books. So it's a vast corpus, much more than I've ever been able to digest, frankly. But uh, the intriguing thing is he started out his career as an academic philosopher, moved into Theosophy, which is, I think, where he really gained prominence, and, and theosophy of of all mystical approaches is, uh, I I don't know if I'd go so far as to call it anti-Christian, but other people have done so, and and it's certainly not Christian. Uh, whereas Rudolf Steiner regards the mystery of Golgotha as central to uh, his esoteric work after he left the Theosophical Society. Well, it's very, it's very interesting. And it's claimed that he has thousands of lectures and thousands of, of the records of thousands of lectures, it's, 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 it's believed. But in relation to Theosophy, uh, we have to distinguish between Theosophy with a capital T and Theosophy with a lowercase. And in the lowercase, of course, it refers uh, in ancient times or older times to theology. And then we see it being used by Christians like uh, Swedenborg, for, for example, to describe wisdom associated with God. And then it got a specific meaning uh, associated with Blavatsky and the people around her. But it, they didn't all have the same view about Christianity. But Blavatsky was certainly uh, not interested in Christianity. And René Guénon's claims that it's an anti-Christian movement. Now, not the entirety of it, but her particular focus. By the time he comes to join the Theosophical movement, and he, they really come to him, he's been lecturing on a number of things. He, he, he's born in 1861, he's in what's now Croatia, uh, but it's part of the Austrian Empire, or the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and his father's a station master, so he's out in the country, and, and, and the big metropolis uh, is Vienna. And so Vienna is where he starts on before before he goes to to Germany. And as you said, he's he's a he's an academic. He becomes an academic, uh, interested in the work of Goethe. Gets a special a special position in relation to editing Goethe's work, and later goes to Germany to Weimar to work with the with the archive there. So he he, he gets involved in 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 publishing, uh, in writing, and writing articles. Later, he does his PhD, which was granted to him by the University of Rostock, which I, I taught there for a short course once, but he didn't really attend there. Uh, and 
he is an academic with an academic with a difference that he he started off with psychic gifts as as a child and and this informed uh, informed his approach so uh, through the uh, 1890s he's he's publishing on goethe uh, he gets he's interested in nietzsche and meets him and uh, writes about uh, nietzsche Although he had, there's, there's, you've discussed this before. He, he didn't really regard him as a philosopher in many senses. He often wrote well about people, uh, but didn't necessarily respect them on a deep philosophical level. He, he writes well about Heckel, for example, uh, who's the, who writes about evolution and, and, and is famous in that context, but he doesn't really respect them on, on, on a deep philosophical level. So, because of his lectures and because of his academic work and his credibility and his scholarship and his insight and because of work he was doing with Goethe and in particular uh, uh, his his interest in Goethe's explanation of fairy tales such as the fairy tale of, of the green of the green snake and the beautiful lily he he's he's invited to uh, to talk to the theosophists and later he uh, from 1902 to 1904 he gets involved uh, as a as a part of the theosophical movement but he he seeks to maintain a degree of independence from the theosophical movement so he is the leading light in in the esoteric domain as as yates wa- wanted to be for, for for a while in in britain and from that base he builds his own base in a quite independent way he did publishing ventures separately etc but Early on, and they knew this, they knew that from the late 1890s, he had had an experience, a kind of noetic experience in relation to, to Christ, where he, he came to understand that the uh, mystery of uh, Golgotha uh, was the central, of central importance in human evolution, the most significant event in human evolution. And he never really changed that. And that's not something that other theosophists would have necessarily appreciated. So in this, he's remarkable, although he's often dismissed as an occultist or a pseudoscientist, uh, I see him often described as, he was in many senses seeking to reinterpret the the story of Christ, or that Christ, uh, as he refers to him at times. And uh, so he... This is in the context, last point, Jeffrey, this is in the context of where he's very worried about uh, science, scientism. And he so he fits into this same critique that Yeats is, is involved in. And he does talk about uh, our old friend Thomas Huxley uh, and the, peop- the, the people who promoted Darwinism. So he does locate his his critique there and that leads him or that encourages him in his pursuit of a, a science based on Goethe, a science based on intuition, and he writes about the philosophy of freedom based on his study of Goethe and, and Schiller. Uh, and uh, but 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 the Christian the Christian narrative, the Christian events had been under attack in Germany, and this is an, a, a critical point to understand about Steiner. That there's a book by Suzanne Marchand who who explains about German Orientalism in the Age of Empire, and it's a very important book, and explains how significant Orientalism was in uh, in Germany in the 19th century. And associated with this was, was a lot of biblical critique, which purported to be scientific. And Steiner was resisting that as well. 
So this helps explain some of his later views. He was resisting this this, uh, dismissal of the Western tradition associated with uh, some of the things we talked about in relation to Yeats, Christian Hermeticism and Kabbalah and all those traditions of the uh, of the West. So he was an Occidentalist in, in many senses. And in that, it was very important for him, and particularly because of his studies of the mystery religions, to explain what the mystery of Golgotha was. So he, he, he's unusual in this sense, in his focus on, on Christianity. But for for Orthodox Christians or for, or for traditional Christians, this may seem strange, but I, I wouldn't be so quick to dismiss it because he saw the danger being the danger, danger of the attack on Christ, Christianity. Uh, so, so that was an important part of his motivation. I guess it's also fair to assume as, as kind of a baseline that he takes these figures that many scholars would think of as metaphorical or mythological. He takes them literally. The the idea of the Christ, the idea of uh, Lucifer or Ariman or uh, other spiritual entities. He believes these, these are living forces and, and in fact that they impinge upon the human psyche, that, that the human psyche itself becomes the battlefield where these forces struggle against each other. Yes. What is different about Steiner is he provides something, before Jung uh, explained it, but in a much deeper level. Uh, he said, for example, when uh, Christ was crucified on Golgotha, that it was perceived in Ireland that the people familiar with the mystery traditions were able to perceive this event at an esoteric level. So, so this is not just an event in, in history. This is an event that imprints on the universe, on the cosmos, and that was the purpose of, of the of the incarnation, and the purpose of the resurrection. So he could also perceive this. This was an opening up of a channel, if you like, uh, to the earth and to humans. Now, even Jung admits that the uh, Jesus Christ was associated with the growth of the individuation of the individual, and other people like Ivan Illich explain that the concept of life was associated with uh, with the christian uh, with the, with the gospels for example which is unusual but but it's an interesting uh, argument so what steiner is saying is that when christ was crucified the blood was necessary for the renewal of the earth and of people and it opened up a possibility for the individuals to find their own possibility of growth to to link to the cosmos again in a way that was increasingly difficult for people to do and he saw christ who was incarnated in jesus from the time he was baptized according to rudolf steiner and underhill has a similar had a similar conception early on so that the christ came into the cosmic christ the force of christ the divine christ came into uh, the man when he was baptized that 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 that's his uh, reading of it and that changed his history and it redeemed he also believed in the fall he believed that in in a way uh, like Owen Barfield one of one of his admirers later interprets that uh, the fall was a kind of fall into a material a material world where we couldn't understand our our spirituality in some sense or we lost touch and over a period of time, that our, our, our capacity uh, was dwindling. 
So the, the blood of the Christ was necessary in order to, to revoke and to redeem the, uh, the fall of Adam, uh, as, uh, whatever way you want to take that. But that's, that's what the description, and you can see that in the Orthodox representations of the skull under, under the crucifix, because it was believed that Adam's skull and Goliath's skull was under, under Golgotha. So uh, what he's saying is that this event was perceivable in the etheric domain, that Jesus Christ is not coming back, but he will manifest in the etheric domain, and it makes it easier for us as individuals to grow, grow our consciousness, to aspire to that model. And as you mentioned, uh, he juxtaposes this, the, uh, the, the Christ figure, uh, against Lucifer uh, and Araman. And he does this uh, in, in a number of essays. There's a very, there's a very interesting point about it, when he does it. In 1915, he gave a lecture on Christ, Lucifer, and Ariman, explaining the interrelationship. And he gave the lecture in Austria, in a place called Linz. And Linz is, was the biggest town near the birthplace of Adolf Hitler. It's quite, it's quite incredible. This, this connection with the, with the times was very, very important. So near where Hitler was born, in 1915, Steiner is talking about Christ, Lucifer, and Ariman. And he explains what these figures are. When he went to, when he was in the Theosophist, before he, he moves on to Anthroposophy, uh, he had a, a magazine called Lucifer Gnosis, which reflected the idea of Blavatsky. She had a magazine in, in Britain before that called Lucifer. So the concept of Lucer, Lucifer was slightly different uh, from the traditional concept, uh, but uh, different from Blavatsky's. And his view echoes some of the things of, of the Christian view or the traditionalist view, and if, if you look deeply enough at it. So he has Lucifer representing one element and Araman representing uh, another element of, of human consciousness. And this is the one that we have to look to to the future. For benefit of our viewers who may not be familiar with Ariman, can you provide a little background there? Okay. Well, although he wasn't an Orientalist, he used Ariman, the Persian of Persian origin in particular, to describe a, a particular aspect of of a force or which is anti-human. So when he's talking about Christ, Lucifer, and Ariman, he's talking about supersensible forces. So these are not just archetypes; they're not egregores. They may be uh, that as well, but they are existing forces that exist in the universe. Uh, and these forces contend within our human nature. They're fighting for us. What you want to do, according to Steiner, is ally yourself with a narrow path towards Christ, to, towards developing yourself as an individual and towards respecting the other in, in symbiosis uh, with the earth and with the God-given nature. And there's two forces. The Lucifer force uh, had had already incarnated 3,000 years before Christ in, in the Orient. And that was a force associated with enlightenment, with concentration on an airy, fiery uh, sense of, of, of what the human uh, is. Whereas the Aramanic force is a force of materialization, which, or crystallization in terms that I've talked about before. And this was a force which was focused on the material world and was dragging the human towards a pure materialist concentration. 
and in his famous sculpture in in Dornoch, and I, I think you've seen this. Is that is that correct? You've seen that sculpture, Jeffrey? Yeah. Yeah. I've been there, yes. Yes, uh, um, I had forgotten how significant Steiner was for you, so I think we have to talk about that. But Steiner worked with the help of a a, a sculptress called Edith Marion on this sculpture that's at Dornan, and it expresses his view on this. So we have a a Christ figure in the middle with his left hand raised uh, in in a particular expression with his fingers hooked in. And we have Lucifer falling from the sky. So Lucifer is the air figure, and which is similar to the Lucifer of which we would encounter in Christian thinking. And underneath, under the ground, is Araman, because he's an earthy force. He's associated with the air and water and material things. And Christ is maintaining the balance with these between these forces. And there are other forces, a kind of eagle force, which is interesting. View, uh, bear in mind the Nazis coming later on, uh, which which is in the picture, and a bat-like force. Uh, bat-like force. But these are the three figures. So Araman is the personification of the materialist ethos, which he identifies with science, and he identifies with the scientific mindset, and he believes that certain people can be kind of overtaken with this Aramanic viewpoint, which displaces their own personality by focusing on the desire, a hyper-desire for material uh, materialism, and that this will incarnate in the future and will uh, seek to end the human race. This being is, it has, is going to be incarnated. We're going through a, prepara- a preparatory stage, and Araman imp- uh, is implemented in the world. So Araman does represent elements of a satanic force, if you like, and it is consistent with John C. Lilly's idea of uh, kind of um, the solid state entity and some other ideas associated with a kind of crystallized and materialized and demonic force. Now, since you brought up John Lilly and and his idea of the solid state entity, let's just expand on that a little bit for benefit of our viewers. Well, when you talk about when you talk about demonic forces and satanic forces and all this, a lot of people kind of may turn off because they say, "Oh, well, that's old hat. We don't believe in them anymore." But if you look at someone, a scientist like John C. Lilly, who you have uh, who you have talked with and discussed these issues, and he worked with dolphins and interspecies communication and was a uh, was a pioneer in in techniques of mind control and uh, expansion of consciousness and worked with the highest authorities. Uh, he believed that there was a, a a growth of a solid state entity which would be made of silicon, nickel, and iron, and which would allow the incarnation of a higher being, an extraterrestrial being that would uh, take over the planet, would use the earth as the source of its fuel, would even in the future move the earth, and that this was going to happen. And when you look at the the growth of artificial intelligence and the growth of the uh, in, in the network society and the ideas that people have for the future and transhumanism, uh, it, it looks more and more plausible. But the interesting element is that the solid state entity in, in many ways becomes a home for another uh, being. And in that sense, it could have been anticipated by figures like the Antichrist, whatever. So some of the scientific views of the future from the futurists 
are not inconsistent with what mystics have been saying for for hundreds of years. And Steiner was very, very clear about about this force, and he was very, very specific, and he was very clear about its origin in a particular mindset of science. Now, remember, last point, um, and John C. Lilly, I think, wrote a book called The Scientist, and the, the word that scientist was articulated by William Hewell in 1833 in Cambridge in a response to Samuel Taylor Coldridge and his his discussion of what natural philosophy was. So what we had in 1833, based on the adherence of a, a small group, which is written about in the Philosophical Breakfast Club, which included Babbage, they they defined the idea of the scientist and they moved away from natural philosophy and therefore separated off from the type of natural philosophy that Goethe would have celebrated and and became uh, informed by the Baconian approach and a kind of in, later on an imperialist view. They had a very, very narrow, narrow di- uh, definition of science. And Steiner sees in this trend, he sees the Aramanic force and John C. Lilly and others articulated in a different way, and he articulated it from his own experience in with high technology and with his explorations of consciousness, which you you, you know a lot about, and, and he developed all those um, the flotation tanks as well, which which were important. So he had a lot of personal uh, mystical experiences with these beings, as you've talked about. Lilly believed that there was this. The solid state entity is some sort of an alien who is influencing humanity telepathically to build more and more computers so that the solid state entity can then occupy them and take over and dominate the whole planet. That's right. And and, and I wonder, when I'm looking at Steiner's description of Lucifer and Araman, if if you look at it in conjunction with someone like John C. Lilly, if... What is happening is that the Aramanic force of materialization, the creation of a, a communications network, which is, a, uh, which is deeper and deeper and deeper and more intensive, is actually the context of incubation of a Luciferian force where the two of them can join together. And the point that Steiner is saying is that the, the Christ f- figure, which we have to emulate, is the figure that holds these two forces in balance. And if you look at Kumaraswamy and others, they've, they've talked about the, uh, this, the, the idea in a, in a lot of myths about the clashing rocks or two forces which come together, which the human has to go between. Well, if we, if we don't keep the forces separate, well, perhaps the Luciferic and Aramanic force can unite uh, in in this way, in in the as indicated by John C. Lilly. Now, he, John C. Lilly also explained that there was a counterforce, and this counterforce informed the positive development of humans, and in particular, it would operate through synchronicity. So he believed that synchronicities could be caused by the positive force, and in that sense, it kind of echoes. What Philip K. Dick, Philip K. Dick's perception about a positive force, which which could be uh, the valus or could be some other positive force in the universe. So they're indicating, uh, the, from a science fiction perspective or from a scientific per, per, uh, perspective as well, that there is also an alternative force, and the alternative force, Steiner says, that's what the 
the the Christ force is. So there's, there's there is a kind of consistency uh, between them. Now I I will say in my interactions with the anthroposophists, uh, they've always explained to me, and and I find this uh, across my interactions with other people who speak for, in their own way, speak for Christianity, that, that the essence of Christ is love. Yeah, I, there's, there's, no, there's no difference uh, there. And Steiner pointed to the fact that Christ, in many senses, was uh, reacting to the over-legalism in the Jewish world. So, uh, he, he, of course, Christianity comes out of the, the previous world, and it's inherently related to that, and it's inherently a development of that. And what the development is for, for Steiner is a sense that now we have to, to move beyond too many rules but by, by, by not focusing on the spirit of the divine force, we have forgotten about the basic proposition and the proposition that Jesus Christ was was uh, explaining to us, which is about the recognition of the kingdom of the spirit and the recognition in other people. Uh, so that simplicity of love was the critical element. And in doing that, in focusing on that, and for him, he manifested itself. He manifested that in creating conditions to improve child education, to improve medicine, to improve or to make centers for people with mental disability. He demonstrated a, a practical concern with, with, with those issues to help people and, and to help people develop individual, individually. So he was trying to articulate a way to, to make the concept of love or to demonstrate it by assisting people in the developing of their spiritual consciousness. So in that sense, he's referring to the essence of what Christianity should be uh, when it's not obscured by arguments about details and by where people act inconsistent with the spirit of it. So in many senses, there is a, a type of scientism a biblical scientism that comes into these issues where people just begin to rehearse text instead of living the spirit of what the experience is. And Steiner argues that you can experience this uh, creative Christ, this force, this healing force, and healing is another aspect associated with love and care. So uh, he is... He is showing that. And, and if you look at people like Pangsep and, and, and talking about the, the different circuits and the play circuit and, and, and in, in the brain and, and so some of the modern ideas about our basic motivations. Well, Steiner is trying to, is tr to articulate what this general love means when we translate it into specific contexts in relation to other people. So he tries to work out what does this mean? And he does so by, by seeking to use the imagination and uh, intuition uh, in, in it and insight. So in that context, he's, he's in the vein of Burma and he's in the vein of William Blake and Jesus, the imagination. And in that context, and he's applying it. And he comes to some amazing, amazing interpretations. For example, uh, his nine lectures on beekeeping 
comes to interest and uh, insight and he makes the he makes the analogy between the hive that the bees come to and the head and the blood circulating in the head it's quite it's quite interesting so so he can perceive things in a different way and he believes that these are the gifts that have been awoken uh, in us and that what we have to do is to develop them to take responsibility for ourselves to activate them and to live them out and that it's in the living out of them uh, personally that love can be manifested itself as opposed to being some vague claim or some vague claim which is superseded by a whole load of rules that jesus came to uh to, to rail against in many senses so golgotha represents the the hill on which christ was crucified it also i gather represents the cave in which his his body was placed after physical death and the place from which he rose or was resurrected or what my friend gene houston likes to say uh, upsy daisy that's right. Uh, there, there has been a bit of dispute. I mean, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is believed to be the place. There was also an alternative view uh, promoted by General Gordon that there was another place nearby, that a place that looked like a skull. Uh, but uh, yes, it's, it's, the, it's the place of the skull, and I think there's a deeper meaning to to that. But uh, so the crucifixion was there. And the body was taken down and uh, was put in the tomb nearby. And what Steiner says is that if you look at all the previous mystery traditions, they were based on an idea of bringing the individual into darkness, into the underworld, in many ways to be born again. And the individual went through a process where they could get some guarantee or some experience that we were more than our physical being, that we could survive death. And that's what people were convinced after they went through the Eleusinian mysteries or the other mysteries, that they had a soul, they had a spirit, and that this persisted. So what he says happened in relation to Christ in the tomb was that this demonstrated the, uh, the, the conditions that had happened beforehand in real life, that the, the, what happened in some ways, metaphorically or psychologically, uh, was demonstrated in reality. So this was the mystery of mysteries. So the, the, there was correspondences between what happened in Egypt in the darkness, as, as Napoleon uh, experienced when he went there, uh, going into the pyramids, or what happened in the Eleusinian mysteries are going underground or what happened in St. Patrick's Purgatory for hundreds of years in Ireland where, pe- where pilgrims went to go, go into a cave. So these were part of a mystery traditions, but this was the mystery turned into, into uh, real life whereby uh, 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 the Christ figure demonstrated that uh, consciousness would pers- persist, we would be resurrected, and that the Christ way was a, a demonstration of the power of love, which was the way forward in relation, uh, and it was significant in relation to our karmic identity and our persistence. So in many senses, it's associated and similar to or what Steiner calls the Buddha nature. Uh, it's a commonality in all tradition. So uh, Christ didn't die just for the people that thump on the Bibles and give out to you for not sending them enough money all the time. 
uh, on the, uh, but what, what Christ died for everybody, for all humanity, because this was a, a figure who was the end of all the mystery schools. And people that you mentioned about his mystery plays, that's why he was so fascinated with the mystery of Golgotha, not just the inexplicable, but this mystery tradition going back to the, the, the Greeks. And he was heavily influenced by Edward Shuray, who had written a, a book called The Great Initiates in 1889, and, and uh, Jesus, the, the, the last great initiate, and he had also written about Eleusinian mysteries. Because this was his, he was another person who saw that science was, was seeking to strip all these traditions away, and they wanted to refer to all the previous traditions to explain why the uh, Golgotha was critical in relation to all these. In many sense, a vindication of many of of the of the earlier traditions, and that's why people that followed on from Steiner, like Owen Barfield and the Inklings, uh, they had they were sympathetic towards the other traditions. They were they didn't believe that there was just one story and all the others were meaningless. They they sought to integrate them and explain them and focus on the significance of uh, Golgotha, the crucifixion, which was critical, and the resurrection, which was which is critical. And they were always they were always the, the, moving from suffering to enlightenment is a classic paradigm. We can see it in all the traditions. We can see it in the Buddhist story. Uh, we can see it in all the traditions of, of the need to suffer in order to understand. But the whole point was that out of it, you should be able to understand on your in your own being that your consciousness survives, that your consciousness is the kingdom of heaven, that it exists now and it exists in, in the next world. And we have to apply that to the uh, to the earth as well to to nature he's very very important in relation to the earth and was influential for people like Rachel Carson and Silent Spring in 1962 she was influenced by Steiner and his views of the soil and the earth so so he 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 is a person who provides this who anticipates this critique of Christianity and incorporates in his holistic view a much wider idea of what the incarnated Christ meant. I gather, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, that Steiner's vision was was so vast that he looked at the idea that before humanity became incarnated on the earth, that, that we had a prior existence. And this prior existence at one time... It, it, you know, primeval times, we were solar spirits, fire spirits that lived in the sun, and that by the time we became incarnated on the physical plane in earth, we had lost touch with the the fire spirit aspects of who we are, and that the event at Golgotha uh, enabled human consciousness for the first time, I gather, to be able to receive that quality of the ancient fire spirits of the sun that we once were. Yes, that's certainly uh, consistent with a number of the things uh, he said. I see it some way as a recovery of a previous pos position. There is an element, there's an element, there's two elements. One, a sense of a recovery of some previous uh, position. And secondary, a sense of 
a trajectory of evolution that we just have to go through, which has different manifestations. So when you go back to what's what his critics called pseudo history, well, it wasn't even there was no history there. But when he he goes back to those times, he's often talking to theosophists and he's talking to people that understand this idea of the really ancient ancient idea of humans and the ancient origin, because even for if you're, say, a Christian or from any other tradition, you, you kind of have to explain or, or, or to consider where you were before you came here. And, 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 that's, that's an in, and, and where did you come from? Uh, so you can't just dismiss these issues if you want to have a coherent cosmological view of where you fit in. So they seek to, he seeks to do that. Now, in relation to the solar, uh, the solar force, the... Uh, Christ is a cosmic force, and and why wouldn't Christ be a cosmic force uh, in that sense? So he's he's not a simple idea of a a kind of vague Christ consciousness, which can be uh, I can't believe it's it's Jesus Christ's kind of view, which means nothing. But it's a much deeper sense. But that that he sees Christ as transcendent, uh, imminent, and embodied. So it covers all, all all the context, and in its transcendent aspect uh, Christ came or was identified with solar power in many senses although according to his cosmology the sun and the earth were mixed up at various times so it gets complicated but at the time of when when uh, before Christ Christ was identified with the sun and in many senses what he's explaining is why or, or he's linking in to why people in Ireland, for example, would have had the sun shining into the dark chamber uh, in Newgrange a few thousand years ago, which I, I, I witnessed. But if you look at the parallels with the story and he makes the connection between that those celebrations uh, around December 21st in, in the midwinter and Christmas, which, which, which is uh, which is, of course, clear the light shining through and the identification of the creative divine force with the sun. Um, so, so that's clear. And he sees it as a solar force, which would also explain or inform perhaps, or give another interpretation of Aslan as a solar figure or solar representation of God in C.S. Lewis's, uh, in C.S. Lewis's work. Uh, so then the figure uh, is incarnated and it becomes real on this level. And, imbues the etheric or shines if you like on the etheric uh, 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 domain so the light shines on the etheric domain as well uh, as within us but he also posits a figure which is less well treated in the literature because he doesn't talk about it so much and this is uh, the the arch evil force which is worse than lucifer and araman and that's sorat and sorat and the Asuras are these, it's the highest evil force, which he, he doesn't mention much. So, in many senses, the Aramanic force and the Lucif- Luciferic force are really close to the human. But this higher evil force uh, is a force which, uh, which will war on humans. And this is, in many senses, it's, it's not dissimilar to what you see in theistic Satanism, for example, and their ideas of a, of, of a higher dark force. It's not, it's not inconsistent uh, with that. 
So that force is uh, is uh, a dangerous force. And I was trying to I was trying to say, well, does this have any correspondence with what say Catholics are are saying? And Father Ripperger, which we talked about before, the exorcist, who's kind of has a degree of contemporary popularity at the moment because of his work. He he recently articulated that when we're talking about about the dark forces, that Satan, Beelzebub, and Lucifer are three aspects of the one being, but in different manifestations. And you had this idea of a correspondence between different uh, dark forces. And uh, Malachi Martin, who is also an exorcist, explained that Satan and Lucifer are two different forces in the spiritual domain. But they begin to get into a similar a similar context when you explain that there's a like uh, Sorat and Lucifer and Araman that can that can work together or uh, or, or or through us. Um, but so so the the solar aspect is the description obviously of the light force and and of uh, incorporating the the sense in previous religions of fire being uh, significant in relation to the Persian uh, background as well. But Sorat was a sun demon. So he said that some of these, like the sun, has aspects, or when the Christ force comes away, presumably that force uh, can operate in in that etheric uh, domain. So he, he, he he has a total view in relation to that but yes it was a solar force he identified with that now again that's not paganism or or it's not uh people say oh that's a pagan view it, it's a description that's informed by the previous uh traditions and I, I don't see why it wouldn't actually talk to to contemporary pagans who love the earth and and uh who who want to worship the the, the divine world it's a kind of integrative force that doesn't dismiss the views uh, are different worldviews. It seeks to expand and incorporate views to try and to, to try and be consistent with his perceived sense of the natural world and natural law. Well, I do gather that Steiner believed the the forces represented by Lucifer and Ariman were actually essential for the development of the, of the human soul. The, the problem exists if if uh, there is no love, no Christ force at all, then these forces become dangerous. I recall when I read, uh, as I began to get into Steiner's work, the first book I read, and it's one I recommend, Knowledge of the Higher Worlds and Its Attainment. And the, the one phrase from that book that has really stayed with me is... Uh, Take two steps towards ethical behavior before you take one step toward power. That's uh, absolutely true in relation to his overall viewpoint. Now, he sees Lucifer and Araman as being in some ways part of the world, and in some ways they were inherent part of our development. And if, for example, we conceive these figures as fallen angels, of figures that rejected God, they they still exist in the universe. They still are uh, at work in the universe. So in many senses, we're always seeking to, whether you see them as archetypally in ourselves, in the collective unconscious, uh, here after the fall, here as a result of the sin, it doesn't really matter. So he said, for example, if you're doing things in an uninterested way, uh, then 
you're feeding Lucifer. And it's quite, I mean, it's quite shocking when you begin to think about it, because he believed that you had to be interested in yourself, to take responsibility for yourself, to be ethical, uh, as you said, in a deep, in a deep sense in relation to all your relationships. And that if you were not, if you were agnostic, and he criticized agnosticism, which I do as well, because a lot of people don't understand what agnosticism means. It doesn't just mean a kind of necessarily healthy neutrality. It was a term coined by T.H. Huxley to argue uh, for someone who who wasn't going to take knowledge intuitively theirself. And it is, is thus the opposite to gnosis or individual knowledge, individual experience, individual intuition. So what Huxley was saying, that if you couldn't prove scientifically that God or the supernatural existed, when well, it doesn't exist. So when you say you're an agnostic, you're, you're, you're corresponding with this very, very limited view. And I, I think a lot of people should be careful about that. And is that really what, the, what they mean? So Steiner is arguing that these are real forces. So he says, you should be interested in what you do. If you go to your job every day and, and, and you, you do things that you're not interested in, it, well, then you're feeding Lucifer. This is a, a real force. So what he's saying is that if you don't expand your spiritual kingdom, be master or mistress of your spiritual kingdom, develop as an ethical human being in relation to others, well, then the other forces can come in and operate. And in this context, he referred to, to, to Lucifer and that. And when you begin to think of it in those terms, well, uh, sitting on the couch, watching the television, you know, having a beer, and, and it becomes a bit slightly different. You begin to see it in a different way. Now, Steiner makes me feel lazy when you see how much work he's done. But these were real forces. So in many senses, they're archetypal. And why wouldn't they be around us if they exist in the universe? Because... If we are created in the divine image, if we are manifestations of the divine consciousness, or if we are the height of what evolution has produced, well, why wouldn't dark forces war for control of us? Why wouldn't aspects of them want to take over the direction uh, uh, of the human evolution? Of course they would. Of course they would. That's why they're never going to go away. That's why the forces are never going to go away. They're going to challenge Christ himself when he goes in, into the desert. So these forces are there and are, I suppose you might say, it's a, like a type of resilience in, in many senses. These are the buffeting forces from which we grow. We know that if a tree is kept out of the wind, it becomes weak. It needs the forces in order to grow. Perhaps it's part of the, des the design of the, the universe, like the Tao and the different elements, the different interacting forces. Or you often talk about the kind of necessity or the, to, to re rep recognize the complementary forces as in some way in the fabric of the universe that we still have to deal with. But the way to evolve is to develop the Christ aspect that is powerful and that can keep these forces uh, under control. That, so, so, that, so that's a critical element. So they're not going to they're not going to go away. And the uh, worse the, the the biggest evil forces are certainly not going to go away. So a lot of what he is doing is preparing us for, uh, to deal with uh, the actuality. And he's seen it through his life, and he, he he prophesied in many senses for me the different forces that that were uh, operating around. But yes, they're embedded. 
all around us. They're real forces. They're super sensible beings. And that's the same thing that all the Christian exorcists, as well as the Protestant exorcists, are, are saying, that these are real, ontologically real forces. They're not just constructions of the mind, although they can be. They're not just figures that we create. They're not just egregores. They're actual forces in the universe for whatever reason. And that same principle applies in relation to, I suppose, extraterrestrials. They must be good and they must be bad. They can't all be benign uh, forces out there. It's just the nature of the existence in the universe and here. There's always going to be. And what, that's what all, why all the mystics and traditions say, know thyself. When you know thyself, you don't create space for other people to other beings to occupy you don't allow yourself to be possessed by these forces as i understand it steiner considered himself personally engaged in a battle with with these dark forces and i i wonder if it contributed to his his health and uh, although i suppose for his era he he lived a full life uh, by today's standards you might say he died young if we look at the reports from when he was dying in Dornock, and, and, and uh, you've been there, it kind of reminds me of the name Dornock of uh, Scrooge and the face of Marley appearing on, on the Dornocker, and that being, uh, funny enough, a, a, a prelude to a kind of near-death experience, a mystical experience, which relates back to, funny enough, uh, to Golgotha, showing the, the, the artistic uh, kind of use of these spiritual themes because art was critical for, for for Steiner and yes he believed or he said as far as I remember that uh, there wasn't a, a logical explanation for his diseases that you wouldn't find an explanation so the implication I believe was that he was being attacked by forces that there is that implication or that in the nature of someone who is a a warrior in the spiritual domain, as often happens, that they encounter and uh, and are affected by uh, their battles, uh, and, and that wouldn't be a surprise. He emphasised in his later lectures in 1922, in particular in Stuttgart, to people who would be teachers, he, he talks about the opposing force that we have, who has come into his age, came in around the time when he had his mystical experience with Christ, and that was the Michael force, or, or Mikael uh, force, the, uh, he was like God. And he was the defining spirit of our age, an archangel who had become the spirit of our times. And this Michaelic force was the force that was going to help us, or that we could identify if we set out on the path of developing our consciousness, to resist and to oppose the dragon, the dragon would be a manifestation of the material world through technology encouraged by science representing the Aramanic forces, uh, that the Michaelic force would reinforce our own consciousness once we uh, committed to that. But I suppose as we see in relation to Christ, and it depends what gospel you read, but one of the defining aspects of the gospels is uh, Jesus's power over demons, over the, the demonic world, and the challenges to him, and the challenges from Satan or the or the devil, whatever. So the point is that this is a ubiquitous, a ubiquitous challenge, as the exorcist would say as well. And 
I don't know, you, you might say, well, he was tired with all the forces that the Nazis... Another, another element that I've been thinking about is that he's watching the rise of... Uh, he's watching the rise of crazy people around him, dangerous people, diabolical people in Germany. And if you're a sensitive person, you're going to imbibe that. He could, he could sense things that were happening uh, around him. He could sense things that were happening thousands of years ago. So I can't believe that he wasn't impacted by the dark forces that were unleashed. And these were psychic forces, as Jung talked about, the forces of Wotan. Although I don't think, I don't think it was a northern force particularly. And in relation to, I think that's uh, overstated. And it's interesting that Suzanne Marchand also argues that German Orientalism was the cause of the downfall of, of high European culture. So it's quite it's quite interesting. This obsession with the East, which Steiner warned against, was uh, was part of the fall of Europe. Not just uh, Orientalism as a colonial experience, but it came, it came back to haunt uh, haunt Europe. But just give one example of the psychic context he's operating in, and I think it struck me uh, remarkably in relation to. The time. So he's in the Theosoph Theosophical Movement until the end of 1912 and 1913. He sets up the Anthroposophy, focusing on the individual. Instead of focusing on God, this focuses on humankind and the wisdom of humans. So in, like Yeats, instead of focusing on things which are being argued about, say, okay, well, let's build, let's build the, the stalagmite up to meet the stalactite and form a pillar instead of trying to, to believe that we know everything about what happens up there. Now, he gave a lecture. He went to Dornoch then and works uh, with the uh, Gothianum that uh, you went to. And, uh, he, but he gives a lecture in Vienna in January 1913, as far as I can see. So if, if we put ourselves in Vienna in 1913, and this is remarkable. And imagine that you're a sensitive person that can pick up what's going in your environment. Now, he might have gone to the Café Central in in Vienna, in the Innerstadt, uh, which is was a place that everyone would go to, and it is remarkable when you look at the history books, and this this is a fact, that in uh, January of 1913, uh, people that might have frequented that cafe and certainly have frequented it at various times around there, uh, included Tito, that became Yugoslavian president, Adolf Hitler. Uh, Joseph Stalin and Leon Trotsky. So these were the people, they were all in Vienna at the time when he was given his lecture. So imagine if you are a person who is trying to promote this spiritual consciousness and around you, you may even, you may even have bumped into these figures from left and from right that were advocating a materialist, scientific socialism, totalitarianism, destruction of the human, disregard of the human, sometimes based, or both often based on a Nietzschean view of the super, of the superman. There's books written about that in both cases. Uh, and he had experience with Nietzsche and he understood Nietzsche and his limitations. But Steiner is in that milieu and he is the one that's advocating for spirituality, individual spirituality. Not this general Hegelian geist, a general spirit sense that informs the people. Not a Volk geist or the, 
the the geist of of the working class or the geist of the empire but he's arguing for the kingdom within the individual the empire of the individual and there's not a lot of people around at the time so there must have been a lot of actual psychic forces literally around him these people were around him and he would have being familiar with what the discourse is and being familiar with where it is going. And when he goes to Dornoch, they're hearing the, the First World or the, 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 they will be hearing the First World War, although they had people from all countries working there. They will hear the sounds of the, of the, of the First World War and the cannons in, in the distance, and they will see the searchlights in the sky. So there's a seeing trauma all around him. So it's not surprising if he was a sensitive person, now, irrespective of whether he's being under a specific spiritual attack, which I'm sure he had some ability to protect himself against, that the sheer weight of this psychic force must must have been uh, must have been cruel uh, to him. And 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 also he was in and another important place for him was was in Munich. He was in Berlin as well as critical, but he was in Munich in 1907, uh, and he was. Uh, he was influential in relation to the growth of the artistic movement, it influenced people like Kandinsky. And of course, Hilma of Clint had met him when he was an anthroposophist and c- c- come to Dornoch as well, uh, which is important to mention. So here's here's a person who's very, very sensitive to all the forces around him, intuitive, and he's he's literally facing some of the forces who would make Lucifer or would it would implement the worst of what you could conceive of in the demonic realm in real life, who would who would seek the death of millions of people and uh, much more if they could let him. So I, I can't believe that that didn't affect him and being in that milieu and seeing the rise of the Nazis and probably being able to sense what was coming. It must have been a big burden on him to see what was coming. My understanding is when he built this fantastic temple of anthroposophy called the Gertianum, there were two uh, of them. The original one built out of wood. I believe, I've heard at least people suggest, and I, I assume there's some factual basis for it, it, it was burned down by the Nazis uh, in 1925, who considered him uh, an enemy of Nazism. Yeah, it was it was burned a couple of years before he was uh, before he died. That, that, that that's right, and, and they they rebuilt it with that poured concrete, uh, which was innovative in its own time because he designed a number of buildings. I think about seven seventeen uh, buildings as well. So there's some people, there's some nonsense criticism about it really, and 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 it's it's terrible that people can make such uh, ill judged comments about him uh, because of course. It's not easy to read all his literature, so it's vast. I've been reluctant sometimes to talk about Steiner because you have to read more and more in order to give the man credit for and to interpret what he's actually saying. And uh, people say he was a Nazi, uh, ridiculous, uh, ridiculous things. He was, uh, uh, what was no point in repeating them, but I mean, it really is uh, ter- terrible in the context of of what he sought to do. Now, I wanted to ask you a question. I wanted to ask you a question because I think it's very, very important. Uh, it didn't strike me until I was I was thinking about Steiner recently, uh, and I've become very conscious. And we've talked about influences from you, and I've li- I listened to your 
your monologues and I've listened to, to uh, thousands, I don't know how many hours of, you, uh, of your interviews. And, uh, so uh, for some reason it didn't register, although you have talked about and you've talked about with Gary Lockman about Steiner and, and, and I see it in individuals. It didn't strike me until recently how significant Steiner was in your individual individual evolution, and and in many ways, that fact of that, that reality of of that, that testament of that, is an important corroboration in relation to my own views recently. When I'm beginning to understand some of the significance of Steiner, so I, I'd appreciate if you could, and I think that the viewers would would enjoy if you just reminded how significant he is for you, Jeff. Okay, I. I have talked quite a lot about two dreams that that influenced the course of my life, in particular in 1972 when my great-uncle Harry visited me in a dream at the moment of his death. That was very profound. But even before that, in 1968, when I was still an undergraduate student, largely a, a, a materialist and a decadent sensualist uh, in that phase of my life. I was attending summer school at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee when a, an individual walked into the cafeteria where I was sitting and handed out flyers. And, and I looked at one of the flyers and saw the words, spiritual science. And it was going to be a lecture about Rudolf Steiner and anthroposophy. And the moment I saw those two words juxtaposed, spiritual science, using the uh, interesting fonts that the anthroposophists use, they've designed many of their own fonts to use, and they're always a little bit asymmetrical, which is an important part of their architecture. But I felt a chill, not just a chill, an electrical almost as if my whole body was plugged into a 60 volt uh, or, or I mean 60 cycle current 120 volts is what we have uh, here but it, it was electric it, it electrified me and I went to the lectures and that was a major turning point in my life so when I returned uh, for my senior year in college Still skeptical, I made the decision to write a senior honors thesis on the psychology of religious mysticism, which was a major decision for a senior undergraduate. And uh, so, so anthroposophy had uh, even you know the the merest brush with anthroposophy, and even after years of talking about it, I feel like we're just scratching the surface. It had a profound influence. I, I wouldn't be the person I am today speaking to you now about these things if if I hadn't seen that flyer in 1968. So I, I regard anthroposophy as, uh, although I never joined uh, the movement, I'm not a, I'm simply not a joiner. But uh, it, it's had a profound and ongoing influence. And, and I would say part of that influence was the idea that there are energies, uh, they often refer to them as etheric energies. I think that's an idea popularized, I'm pretty sure, by Madame Blavatsky and Annie Besant and C.W. Ledbetter, who worked with her. Uh, 
So it came out of theosophy into American culture, the idea of etheric energies. And actually, many 19th century esoteric uh, people, occultists, talked about etheric energies because at that time, that was the cutting edge of, of science prior to Einstein. But it referred to a certain quality inherent in the human soul that anthroposophists learned to develop in their agriculture, in their medicine, in the uh, movements, uh, eurythmic movements that they've developed. It was all about learning how to work in a positive way with etheric energy. And I, I feel like I've benefited enormously from just this tiny brush of interest that I've had in Rudolf Steiner. Yeah, that that dawned on me um, that, that the significance of that kind of personal link and a kind of qualify or, or help me understand because I'm familiar with uh, the growth of, of your interest in these issues but in particular that, that registers with me uh, when you say that and what it does as well is manifest this idea that uh, these kind of forces are our forces they are forces that operate as you've you've explained they have reality in whatever strange way that they operate and this is the thing that that goes through a lot of this uh, mystical experience or the intuitive experiences uh, as steiner has talked about and it demonstrates the reality and the uh, again similar to the idea of the uh, the agnostics it's there's a lot of debate about what you're expected to believe in but the question is not necessarily what you believe in in many cases. It's what you unbelieve in is the things that you don't know that you believe in. So by being an agnostic in the context of Huxley, you may not understand that you're erecting barriers to intuition, etc. that are not going to operate because you're using the power of your mind to exclude them unbeknownst to your, yourself in another sense. So in many senses, I think... What Steiner is pointing to is a willingness to take responsibility and to open up. Now, I'm not saying to open up to dark forces or anything like that, to open up to yourself as, as a flower which, uh, and to an efflorescence in relation to the, the, the spiritual world. And that was, kind of in, that was in the context of his exploration as well of the, the green snake and the beautiful lily, that idea of which you've talked about in relation to self-initiation. What Steiner is saying is, uh, for example, when he's talking about children and there's, uh, you know, there's different phases associated with when their teeth fall out in seven and 14, etc. The implication is, and I, I, this is behind my work in the mystical accord as well, is that the growth mystically, the internal growth of the spirit is an organic process if you don't interfere with it. There's certain phases and that what people are telling us is about the likely phases and the way to interpret them. So in many senses, we have to get out of our own way in order to evolve, but that it is a real force. Now, when the, the words that caught your attention about spiritual science, initially for me, they're words that I, I would now kind of be a bit wary of because I, I criticize scientists, scientists for scientism. And I also criticize mystics and spiritual people who purport to be scientific when they're not being as well, because that can be scientism as biblical. The Bible can be have biblical scientism. But 
in your case, you're demonstrating the power of that juxtaposition and what he was trying to do by putting those two things together legitimately was seeking to recover what had been lost when Hewell and, and Coleridge had that little split that led to a very unique idea of science that was totally divorced from natural philosophy. And that's what Goethe and others were, were seeking to indicate and and again we could we go back to Swedenborg and an example of a scientist who went on to a, a mystical journey. So in many senses, spiritual science, as he articulates, is for me an effort to heal this rift that has started off and that bifurcation between an unduly concentrated aromatic sense of applied. Uh, science which is divorced from other forces and other contexts and decontextualized so it can be damaging and and an attempt to recover to recover science and to bring it back as as it has to be recovered and we know when he was young man uh, he was influenced by a man for example that he met on the train because because steiner seems to have been very friendly and open and, and he met a man called felix kagushi who appears in his mystery plays along with other figures like christ and lucifer appeared in his mystery plays as well because he's seeking to dramatize the internal uh, challenges of, of spirit and to represent in some ways the dramatization dramatizations that happened uh, that he saw in kind of masonic contexts or also in the mystery plays, that this idea that there are ways to represent what what happens. But in that context, he was aware, like Yeats was, that there was a tradition, a tradition of knowledge, traditional knowledge in Europe about herbs and medicines and things that science was, was seeking to override. And when he's asked to be involved in agriculture, it's because the farmers were understanding some of the problems that now authorities are coming around to solve about the, the, the uh, chemicals and insecticides and what's wrong with them. And he understood that from a spiritual perspective. And the implication of all that for me is that Steiner, Steiner's view of Christianity, uh, if you take it from the perspective of another one of your heroes, William James, and you say, well, if we're talking about truth, well, truth has an element of what works in practice. Does this proposition, how does this proposition play out in practice? And on those terms, uh, well, then Steiner's view of Christ and Jesus Christ is a, a much more true one in many senses, that he anticipates a lot of the problems. He talks about he talks about black magic taking over society. He talks about the black magic of journalism, for example, a hundred years ago. He was aware of some of the forces that people claim are modern forces. He was aware of, of particular dangers and he was aware of, of, of the need to, to align. So I think uh, your your personal uh, experience uh, sticks in my head. I, I, can, I, can, uh, I won't forget you getting that, uh, that leaflet. And it also testifies to the reality of these forces, that they're not merely forces that exist in a book in a cognitive thing, the things about the essence of your existence on the deepest level, dealing with the deeper magic that Lewis talked about, that's deeper than any other sorcery, that's more powerful, based on creativity and compassion or love in the context that he explains it, and applied. He, he, he was in, very important on that idea of applying this to the real world. And he was very important 
He was very interested in the idea of art and true art, as you've talked about before with Charles Upton and uh, in another context, that art had to seek to enhance these forces and be related to it and, and not be divorced from. But ultimately, it's a real force that operates on people, as, as I think that example very ably uh, demonstrates. And, and it kind of, it'll make me listen with a bit of a keener ear when you're talking about Steiner again, or when I'm listening to some of your your old conversations. Well, there's one aspect of Steiner's work that I think directly relates to your own emphasis on the destructive aspects of scientocracy and scientism. Steiner founded the Waldorf school system, which I understand is still today the second largest private school system in the world. And one of the things that I gathered from Waldorf school teachers uh, with regard to the rise of computers and the the fact that a young child, a two-year-old child, can learn to use a computer and they love them. However, uh, in anthroposophy and in the Waldorf school systems, they have, uh, as I understand it, I may be wrong about this, but my understanding is that they don't recommend giving computers to children until the second set of teeth have come in, I guess at around the age of seven or eight. They feel that is very destructive to to give a, a, a computer to a child prior to that time because it uh, leads to imbalanced growth as they get older. Well, there's a kind of myth in some ways that recently you see it in the literature that childhood was a kind of Victorian construction that it didn't exist before in some way and, and this kind of nonsense. Uh, but Steiner was one of the ones who really emphasized the significance of childhood education and the connection with the natural world. And this is a thing, for example, that we would have taken for granted in Ireland for the people in the countryside or even in the cities. They were never far away from the countryside. So the natural world used to be very close to people. It's even changed radically in my lifetime and people are being distanced from nature and there's loads of psychological studies about the benefit of being in nature being close to nature and now this aramanic force as he would describe it is dragging people into it and that's what the purpose of this concentration is to drag the human consciousness into the machine i mean that that that's the implication of it this is the this is where the technology is going so it's not only that we're coming into the technosphere but we're moving away from nature and john c lilly said that nature would be destroyed all the resources would be destroyed by this new system it would suck up all the all the resources we can see that happening in relation to all these new environmentally friendly technologies they talk about they have huge costs on the environment as we've discussed before so it doesn't seem to make sense so his focus on uh, children and in relation to getting space in relation to getting space to develop and also children with uh, disabilities and, and, and with different different ways of learning and different neuroplasticity he was very very clear on that and inherent in that would be would have to be a cautiousness about the nature of of, of technology and i've seen a lot of i've seen a lot of people from an anthroposophy context for example become de- more re-engaged with traditional religion, for example, and move back and to take those messages 
into, for example, Catholicism. Uh, I've listened to people who who were involved, who were involved, New Age, etc., and anthroposophy, and moved into Catholicism. And actually, I, I don't know, I couldn't necessarily verify this, but it appears in a number of contexts that uh, Pope John Paul II, when he was uh, engaged in acting in Krakow, was interested in, in Steiner and, and his work at that time, which is uh, quite interesting. And of course, there is the great book, Meditations on the Tarot by Valentin Tomberg, who was an anthroposophist, and then uh, reinterprets kind of Christian hermeticism. Uh, so all these point to a, a, a total view, and in that view, uh, machinery and technology would have to be servants, and they would have to be servants of people who are able to control them. And now we have an opening up of the childhood consciousness to powerful algorithms who act all often inconsistent with their own best interest. And as you've talked about uh, eurythmia and eurythmics and, and uh, the idea of rhythm is fundamental, the idea of the warm-blooded human was associated with rhythm and was crucial. And he talked about the calendar of the soul and he wrote about the cycles and the needs to get into the cycles where you, where you live and the environment and follow the patterns of energy of the year that children had to do that in particular and attune themselves to the natural world, to what happens around them. And if their attention is focused on something that comes between them and the world, they can't do that and they will suffer as a, res as a result of that. And I, I see, there's a kind of similarity I see as a critique uh, per from personally, some, some, this idea that there's some force out of yourself there that will give you all the answers. It comes up some some context in relation to people that can be fundamentally drawn or have a fundamental approach to religion, that here is this unit that gives me all the answers. It's a similar thing in relation to the mobile phone or the here is all the things out there. And the whole basis of the epistemology of Steiner, going back to his early work, informed by Goethe, informing his PhD at the University of Rostock, uh, informing his, his book, uh, his first major work in relation to freedom is that it's all within us. We have all the capacities and we have to feed that capacity and move out of that. So what we can't do is reduce our capacities through technological things. So absolutely, I think that the, his, his perspective, he would be horrified by what, absolutely horrified and justifiably horrified. And he would he would ask why we are subjecting children to forces that he would see essentially as demonic forces and that's what how he would interpret it and people people don't see that uh they, they can't see that and part of this is because we have blinded ourselves or are spiritualized our, our, our clothes are unopened or we are unawakened in many senses well i have known people who have gone through the Waldorf school system their whole lives. And I find that they have a, a sensibility a, a, about themselves, an awareness of their own energy and how to use it, how to work with it in a positive healing way. It's, it's really quite remarkable. Uh, if I had children, uh, and I never had children of my own, I would have sent them to the Waldorf school. Yeah, uh, I, I can see the 
the attraction of that of that um, I don't have experience, but I do have experience of people who have taught in in those things, and I'm impressed uh, with them. And, and and that's that's a good testament when you can, you know. And of course, there'll be loads of people who had bad experiences as everywhere. You'll be getting emails, oh, I don't, but uh, that's always the case. But the philosophy, it, it's as as Christ can't be held responsible for some of the things supposedly done in his name the similar in relation to steiner we can't attribute to steiner some of the things that are done in in his name but yes i, I think uh, that the idea of developing the individual so that they they feel integrated in the environment and they have a sense of pattern in their life it must give them a sense of meaning and meaning is the thing that's challenged most in relation as a starting point for people in relation to the, an image of themselves and when you have a demeaning society and a dispiriting society which is what Huxley I believe was seeking to do and, and that ideological movement is to dispirit uh, discourse and to dispirit the concept of the world and reduce it to a narrow and ugly view there's an aesthetic element as well that that beauty and the good and truth had a, had a beautiful element and this is the the concept behind some of the ideas, the buildings, the Gesamtkunstwerk, the, the kind of total artwork, the idea that you, you should live in a beautiful place, that the, the places you go to will affect you, that if you're in a nice environment, that it's going to affect you. And when we compare that with the some of the uh, places that are ugly, that people are forced to live in, it, it, it's inconsistent uh, in many senses. We're building up a... Uh, a beautiful environment when you have a kind of brutalist architecture that's unremoved or that's removed from the uh, from the needs of, of, of people and the, are machine-like and the idea of the, 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 the machine buildings, uh, etc. So uh, I don't have any doubt that that's true in relation to um, people that get uh, a, a, a holistic uh, education. And I would say as well to critics that begin to criticize him because they don't like his Christianity, uh, that really he emphasizes uh, the mystery of Golgotha, the reality on a deeper level of the, uh, of the events at Golgotha and the impacts of that and the message associated with this on a deep level that it took a long time before people like young and that could could come and articulate in a different way so cheap shots at him because he's an occultist or because he has different view or he has a different way of explaining or because there's artistic uh, license in some of the explanations or you, you interpret them that, that way uh, doesn't really uh, doesn't really match the the success of, of his message and and in future i think that some Christians will be more open to him and see that he was, he saw that the West is imploding. I, I believe the West is imploding, uh, Jeffrey, and that he foresaw that because of this fascination with this kind of oriental force and materialism and scientism, that it's actually, and, and Europe is, is, is going to implode uh, because it's lost its its essence. So I, I don't, unfortunately, I don't have any doubt about that in, in the way that he termed it. So uh, his message about Occidentalism was a very shrewd view that we shouldn't have 
given and we shouldn't give away the Western tradition in in magic, in spirituality, in mysticism, the one that was the Judeo-Christian, Greco-Roman uh, and informed by the Persian uh, context, that it was a mistake to give that away for something that wasn't related to our experience. And that that tradition and experience uh, going from Jehovah, which he believed there was a change associated with Golgotha, that the the idea of a, a divine force was extended to everybody as well uh, because of that. It was a movement beyond the tribe of the Israelites to as a gift to the world in, in, in some context. So what he's saying, this is the crucial thing. And that that was the basis of whatever success the West had. And it's it, when you throw it out, uh, it, it won't continue. A kind of remarkable prescience. And he, he, he kind of anticipated and, and could see the forces around him, whether in in uh, the Soviet Union or what the Soviet Union or... Uh, in Western Europe, and he was very critical as well, which I have been in the plantation of the automaton. He believed he, he said in a few few lines, which are ignored, that there would be an Anglo-American dominion of the world, but it would be a brutal and deadly, a deadly, deadly one. That, that's what he, he foresaw. He foresaw the Anglo-American, what I call Atlanticist force, would come to dominate the world, but it wouldn't. It wouldn't be good for humanity, and and the kind of. It's kind of remarkable prescience in that. I, I think he's right on that. So that the the Western force is transmuted into some kind of uh, global force, despiritualized, based on these kind of uh, Aramanic Luciferian force and possibly informed by the one that we forgot about. I forgot about Sorat that was in the background that we don't want to meet. Uh, but this is consistent with, with what the traditionists are saying. So although the traditionists can legitimately uh, dismiss the Theosophists, and Guenon is right about Blavatsky, we have to be a bit more careful in our assessment of Steiner, that there was much more depth in what he was saying, much more specificity in relation. And he also deals with the Apocalypse, and that's linked to Sorat uh, uh, as well, uh, and 666, etc. He, he, he talks about um, John's Apocalypse and that. So, so he, he's a very important and, and relevant figure, and, and not just uh, not just for the people that participate in the system, but for everyone, I, I think. Uh, on a final note, uh, one thing that I observed that really stayed with me when I visited the little village of Dornach in Switzerland, where the Gertianum is located, and there is a community of anthroposophists there. When you look at their houses, you almost never see right angles the, the doors, the windows have all got typically five sides or, or, or more. That they, they felt that there was something stifling to the human spirit itself about right angles. Of course, you can't avoid them entirely. Right angles are very important as, as my mentor Arthur Young has, has, has explained. But the idea of living in an environment that is more organic and not just a box seemed to be crucial to the anthroposophical lifestyle. I don't know if he had any influence on him, but Hunter Wasser, uh, who came from that context and went to New Zealand, he had the same philosophy, and I presume he was informed by this idea because he was against the straight line. He believed 
that it was deadly. And I, I, I like some of Hunter Wasser's uh, ideas. Well, I like a lot of them about art and about about uh, lack of a straight line in his architecture. And I've seen some of his architecture in New Zealand. Uh, and it, it was quite innovative. And it, it was because of they weren't going for the straight line. And I think he may have mentioned this in the context of beekeeping, that animals like bee or, or insects uh, don't like right angles. So that they didn't like it in their in their homes. And he describes the significance of shapes because geometry was one of his first loves. And he he started off with as a first kind of love for geometry. And he saw the world in in those terms. But by looking at animals. He explains, for example, he talks about crystals, of course, he's onto everything. He explains how the hexagonal force forces itself up from the earth into reality. And he explains that in relation to, to bees. And I think that the, the bees don't like the right angles and there's some uh, reason for that. So uh, it, it's not a surprise. And it's kind of, uh, yeah, you see, it kind of reminds me as well of the, the hobbits and their, their, their houses as well, the shape of, of, of the things. There is an implication that we're meant to have a type of architecture that's consistent uh, with the environment and it's not an imposition as people like Lorenz van der Post used to talk about, about the humans creating something, architecture that looked like a cancer. And as C.S. Lewis talked about us becoming the cancer of the universe if we continued on this. The idea that it's kind of just a repetition of something that's not good. And that if we were able to invest our time uh, on being interested in our environment, being interested in our life. As you talk about being here now, uh, focusing on the present, focusing on the place we live, on the aesthetics and the beauty of where we live and contribute towards that and getting involved in it and getting involved in the art and craft and then applying it to our daily life. Well, then we can demonstrate a different type of love and an exemplar in relation to uh, the environment. What he's saying is that we're part of nature and we have to learn the rhythms. But the, the the opposite point is that if the intention is for us, and now I'm saying this, to, to be dragged into the technosphere, what will happen in accordance with the principles articulated by Thomas uh, H. Huxley is that we adapt the world to us. And this is what C.S. Lewis warned about. So we will create a world that is adapted to us and then we will be dependent on that world that we create so we won't be uh, we won't be living in a natural world we'll be living in a machine world once we once we move away and in many senses like in the the representative of humanity that sculpture that he did uh and the it's a symbolic christ he was saying a spiritual christ and christ has his feet on the ground and he He's kind of recommending as well in his work that we keep our feet on the ground and that we keep close to to nature and earth with a proper sense of keeping uh, keeping the ethereal in its proper place and the earthy in its proper place, that we're in between that. That's the position uh, of humans and that's under threat and that that's why we have to invoke the forces within us. That's the most important, to realize that to realize our own our own journey, our own initiation, our own expansion, our own suffering and our own resurrection internally and in the, the life to come, but also in our own life uh, to move beyond the pain of particular circumstance 
to accept that suffering is in the universe, to accept that there may be a karmic element in the things that we do in our own life or whether from past lives in whatever way that works, that these things can work themselves out. We have to recognize and work with the rhythms that are out there and not try and control the environment, uh, our emotions, our feelings, our thoughts. And, and that, that was another big thing that is our thoughts come from the universe that they're not just their ideas in the universe they come into us they're not all manufactured they're not all given to us um so that yeah the the, the it was very funny about is some of his insights on things like bees and that can really open your minds and you're not expecting it and by observing nature observing plants observing the world he's, he's telling you to go and look at things to do what goethe said to look at the plants to try and to try and visualize the plant, visualize its structure, to look at minerals, to see how they grow, to tell us what message is the earth telling us about the way it grows, to apply that to our life, to understand that we have crystals in our body. He says, for example, that there are crystals in the body always threatening to crystallize and that our the, 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 the homeostasis keeps it from doing so, which is kind of like the, the the Christ idea as well, keeping things in balance. The balance, the harmony, the same as on your your symbol of yin-yang, the symbol of harmony, keeping things in balance, being centered, being focused, accepting the range of forces, but accepting that you have to have con control of them. And as you've said, strange little keys, like is a, 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 the idea of not having straight lines or um, help us, to think differently and i think we really have to to think in those simple simple ways again james tunney once again a brilliant conversation i feel uh, incredibly uplifted and stimulated every time i speak to you so i, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being with me today uh thanks very very much jeffrey and uh I, I was moved by again. He's one of these figures that moves you when you when you engage with him, whatever level you engage with. And I was also moved by by your story because it it gives me another understanding. Uh, and it, it, it's very interesting if we cast our minds back to to you and that canteen and the difference. And this is a thing for for people to understand, especially for younger people, that your whole life in many senses you don't have to know where you're going don't have to you have to be disposed and open the opportunities will come when 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 you focus on the right things on the spiritual things on the things of, the, of beauty and the on the good things and things of truth and they will they will work out for you if you if you do so and if you follow your follow your bliss with enthusiasm and and you're a great example of someone that's interested in in, in, in things and you demonstrate in your life, the thing that he was arguing for, uh, that be interested in what you're doing. And there's no better exemplar of that. And I don't think you'll, you'll be forgotten for your manifestation of using your life to pursue things that you think are important and that then become, because the last point, the whole point of the initiation in Goethe's view, in Steiner's view, ultimately, in all these mystery traditions, is that when you realize who you are, what happens then is, and this is an important way to interpret the mystery of Golgotha, is that you're then prepared to make a sacrifice for others. Because you're not as focused on your own interest, you're focused on something which is valuable, 
you actually make a sacrifice because you're not concerned in the same way about specific interests. And that was the key for him. And in many senses, sacrifice doesn't have to be like uh, like Jesus went through. It's a sacrifice of a different. It's about giving up some of your things that are not a sacrifice and things that are not relevant to the promotion of the fundamental things uh, of beauty, uh, goodness, and truth, and that. And, and and that's that's what the message I take away. And I think uh, I think your 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 life on this context. Uh, exemplifies that aspect of Steiner. So thank you very much once again, Jeff. Thank you. Well, what you've said really exemplifies why I close every interview by thanking our viewers for being with us because they're the reason we're here. Exactly. Thank you. The inaugural issue of the New Thinking Aloud magazine was just released on March 1st. You can download a free PDF copy from the New Thinking Aloud Foundation website.